From Michigan Radio, this is Stateside. I'm April Baer. Today, what's different going forward after thousands of backlogged rape kits were discovered in Detroit? Uh, Law enforcement agencies in the state are now required to collect rape kits from hospitals within 14 days, and then they have to send these kits to testing facilities within 14 days of receiving them. Then, the changing threat of terrorism 20 years after 9-11. Well, almost immediately after 9-11, counterterrorism became the top priority of the Department of Justice. We'll talk with former U.S. Attorney Barb McQuaid. And one Michigan first responder reflects on the scene in New York City on September 11, 2001. Anybody that worked there will never, ever forget it. It slapped you in the face in ways that TV just simply cannot convey. The sights, the sounds, the smells. Those stories coming up on today's edition of Stateside. Welcome to Stateside. I'm April Bear. Today on the show, Michigan as a proving ground for the post-9-11 world of law enforcement. Law enforcement had a duty to use all the tools that it had to do what it could, and to this day what it can, to disrupt these threats, whether it's coming from al-Qaeda or it's coming from a, a militia group in rural Michigan that wants to kidnap the governor. That story is coming up later in the program, but first... Wayne County's prosecutor, Kim Worthy, says her office is close to clearing a backlog of some 11,000 rape kits that went untested for decades. The results of that processing has led to hundreds of convictions and the closing of thousands of unsolved cases. Bryce Huffman, a reporter with Bridge Detroit, published about this story this week, and he joins us now. Hey, Bryce. How's it going, April? Hanging in. Uh, Bryce, when news of these kits... And the backlog of kits became public. It was a pretty big scandal. This made the national news, and it led to other cities and jurisdictions admitting that they, too, had backlogs of untested rape kits. Can you bring us up to speed on the history here? Yeah, so back in 2009, uh, a lot of untested rape kits, about 11,341, I believe, uh, were all found in a DPD, uh, Detroit Police Department, warehouse. Uh, And obviously this upset a lot of people because without testing these kits, um, you know, the county prosecutor and others say that serial rapists were left on the streets because no one was getting the evidence, no one was making these cases, and no one was, uh, most importantly, convicting these assaulters. So, you know, this was a really embarrassing moment for the police department and for the city. But I think as a result, it made other cities um, start to really do this work. And it and it helped the city of Detroit, in particular, um, really change the way they think about testing these rape kits and the urgency with which these cases need to be tested. Did the city and the county ever have a, an answer for why these cases and the kits had languished for so long? There was no real answer given. Um, city officials blamed it on uh, people who came before them. Uh, County officials blamed it on the city officials, blaming the city officials before them. So there was no real answer given as for why these kits were just languishing in a warehouse, aside from the fact that, um, you know, cost was one of the reasons given. They were saying that, you know, until the department has the money to test all these kits, you know, we can't really do much about it. But that's not an answer that's satisfying to anyone who was involved in any of these cases. Right. So enter Prosecutor Kim Worthy. She made it a point throughout her tenure and in campaigning for re-election that these kids were going to get some attention. How long has that process now taken? 
It's taken about 12 years now. Um, so from 2009, when the kits were first found, uh, Worthy was pretty instrumental in trying to not only get the kits tested, but to prevent it from happening again. Uh, and one of the ways that she did this was by really working hard to get laws changed around how these kits were tested. So in the state of Michigan, now you can't just have a bunch of rape kits uh, languishing around in a warehouse. Michigan uh, law enforcement agencies in the state are now required to collect rape kits from hospitals within 14 days, and then they have to send these kits to testing facilities within 14 days of receiving them. So, Bryce, when we talk about clearing that backlog over 12 years, what was involved in getting this done? I mean, I imagine there's the technical piece of it, but also the investigative hours on on the the legal end of the cases? Right. So, uh, you know, right now there's 199 cases um, still being uh, prosecuted from 2009. And then there's 150 cases that are still awaiting an investigation. So what it took was a lot of coordination between the county prosecutor's office, um, the Michigan State Police, the Detroit Police Department, um, and then law enforcement agencies in other states. Because one of the things that is maybe most shocking or most appalling about this is that about 40 states, including Michigan, are all connected to evidence from these kits. Yeah. So uh, this is this is something that was handled by multiple jurisdictions, yes? Yes, for sure. It was right. county, st- city, state, um, and then other agencies from other states as well. At the end of the day, we have, at this point, more than 4,000 cases closed and 224 convictions. I, that's... That's incredible. It is. And I think um, one of the things that is, you know, that sticks out to me about this is that, you know, even though some of these rape kits are decades old, um, Kim Worthy in her office, they really are committed to testing these kits and prosecuting anyone that they can who is connected to any of these assaults that occurred. Were you able to get a sense of what kind of challenges the investigators were up against in trying to unpack these cold cases? Yeah, so some of the some of the difficulties were, uh, you know, this evidence is fairly old. Some of the um, people who, you know, might have left DNA in these kits, you know, are no longer alive. Some of them are already in prison. Some of them, you know, some of the kits came back with testing that wasn't the most conclusive. So it took a lot of investigating beyond what was found in the kits to make some of these convictions happen. And uh, as the county prosecutor, as, as Kim Worthy said, a lot of these kits involved serial rapists, you know, people who were raping 10, 15, and some even 20 people. Kim Worthy has said that the kits and the work that went into processing them will help solve other crimes. Can you explain what, what she means by that and what she has in mind? Right. So, uh, you know, with these kits, it's DNA evidence, right? And if, let's say, from one of these kits, you find DNA from someone who was on trial for murder or in uh, a robbery or something like that, the DNA from these kits could actually make connections between cases that are you know, otherwise unrelated or seemingly unrelated. So someone might have left DNA at a crime scene that uh, matches DNA that's found in one of these kits. So you're not just getting sexual assaulters off the street. 
you could potentially be getting um, murderers off the streets as well with this evidence. It feels like uh, all of this work and all of this effort, uh, it's not going to mean as much if the state of Michigan finds itself in another 10 years with the same situation on its hand. What do we know about how these kits and, and these rape cases are processed today? One of the big changes is that in 2014, a law passed in our state that law enforcement agencies here have to collect the kits from hospitals within 14 days, and then they have to send those kits to labs within 14 days of taking possession of them. That law also requires that the labs analyze these kits within 90 days if sufficient resources are available. And one of the big changes is that because of this case, the resources from uh, from county prosecutors, from the state, um, from people prosecuting these cases are going to be there. People want these kids to be tested as early as possible because that gives them the best chance of getting these assaulters off the streets. I get that the laws have changed and that seems like a very good thing. But one of the things about rape cases is th- they tend to come with a lot of with a lot of baggage on the side. I know All that right. for the story you talked to John Serta, a Detroit police captain in the Special Victims Unit. And he told you that uh, what a lot of people, I think, already suspect, that a lot of survivors don't really want to talk to the police, despite the fact that there's a special unit. Did he say anything about the cultural changes that may have happened within policing or within DPD specifically to make survivors feel more welcome and to feel that they will be believed? Right. That is something that's really important to um, rape cases is having people uh, having police officers and law enforcement agencies believe the people who are telling these stories because that is going to make uh, the person, the survivor, it's going to make them more willing to work with law enforcement. So one of the things that DPD is doing is instead of just having them talk to police officers, you know, people with a badge and a gun, they're getting these people in touch with social workers immediately. So they have someone who has um, more mental health training talk to them about what they've been through, about the trauma that they're experiencing. Um, Because oftentimes, you know, police are trying to, they they think about solving crime. They think about doing what it takes to, you know, get someone off the streets, but they're not always necessarily thinking of the survivor first. And that's what the social worker's role would be. Right. After decades of inaction and then another 10 years plus on this, There's no question that some of the perpetrators and probably even some of the victims may have died before justice could be done. What are you noticing about uh, the advocacy community? Are there any survivor groups that have materialized to try to support the victims, uh, both those who were helped by the process and those who were not? Uh, You know, there's a lot of advocacy groups uh, in the Detroit area that especially when when the kits were first found, were very, very vocal about this issue and wanted to get the kits tested. But I think all of those advocacy groups would uh, have to acknowledge that, you know, these cases, you know, the 11,000 that were uncovered, that's not the end all be all of stopping sexual assault in Detroit or anywhere, right? It's it's about changing the cultural Mm -hmm. attitude about consent. Uh, And a lot of the advocacy groups that uh, I researched when doing this piece, you know, they they make it very plain that this is just one piece of the puzzle. And to really make 
things better for women and men, you know, who are victims is that we need to change the way we talk about sexual assault. We need to change the way we talk about trauma and we need to change the way we think about what might happen to someone after they go through something like that. And that, you know, all of those things together will make things better for, um, not only sexual assault survivors, but it will prevent more sexual assaults from happening in the future. Bryce Huffman is a reporter with Bridge Detroit. Bryce, it's great talking to you. Thanks for the work on this. Thanks so much for having me. Up next, with the anniversary of September 11, 2001, just around the corner, we'll talk about emergency personnel from Michigan who headed to New York City in the wake of the attacks. Anybody that worked there will never, ever forget it. It slaps you in the face in ways that TV just simply cannot convey. The sights, the sounds, the smells. That's after a short break. We'll be right back. This is Stateside. I'm April Bear. This week, many of us have been mindful of another cool, sunny September day 20 years ago, the day the world lurched sideways. There are many stories to tell about September 11, 2001. Today, we'd like to bring you a first-person account from someone who was in New York just hours after the towers came down. Michael Bouchard has been involved in the law enforcement community since his early 20s. He's Oakland County's sheriff. That's a job he's been elected to six times, with a few breaks as he served in public office. And it's the same job that he was doing on September 11, 2001. Sheriff Bouchard, welcome to Stateside. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Do you remember where you were when you first heard about the first plane striking the North Tower? Absolutely. I was sitting in the chair I'm sitting in right at this moment. I was at work in the office and information started to flow in about a a plane striking the building. And as it developed fairly quickly, we realized that it wasn't an accident. Yeah. What went through your mind when these realizations were happening? Well, multiple layers go through your mind, right? The first is the tragedy and the loss of life and how it's affecting so many people that's playing out in front of you live. And then the second, from my point of view, given that I'm charged with keeping Oakland County safe, is what do I need to do to put us on a safe and a positive footing? Because a lot of people don't remember if they weren't part of it. No one had a clue, even the president, of how extensive the attacks may be and what might be targeted. So my first job is to protect Oakland County. Right. How did the idea first come up that you might go to New York? After our staff meeting about, you know, putting our people on extended shifts and covering, securing, and identifying what we call critical infrastructure locations within Oakland County, places that are important, not just Oakland County, but in many situations, our country, we have on an identified list. And so we set out to secure them and protect them and and began doing some homeland security kinds of missions and patrols here in the county. Once that moment had passed, then I could look at what was going on, you know, elsewhere around the country. And about that time, I got a call from New York. I'm head of government affairs for major county sheriffs of America, and I was at the time. And so I received a call from New York requesting help. What were their needs at that point? Obviously, their needs were very large in terms of personnel and trying to rescue at that point was the focus, rescue whoever 
possibly could be rescued from the rubble and to also have personnel, again, because no one knew the extent or what might be also coming on the heels of this to have enough people from their command and their operations to protect the city as other people helped flood in to help rescue and work on the site of the attack that had already occurred. Do you remember how soon after that Tuesday you were on a plane? Well, actually, what happened was once we got that call, we started to put together a team. I basically picked people that I thought may be helpful or useful in that situation. So I had fatal accident investigators in case we needed to document any kinds of things related to the crash or position of buildings or debris, et cetera. I brought ATVs from our park patrol in case we needed to be able to access areas that were strewn with rubble and a car wouldn't get to. And so we we put together kind of a list of what we would want to bring that would be assistive to the mission in New York. And then how to get that there obviously required a caravan. At the time, there was an all stop on air travel. So our relief column left the sheriff's office at about midnight on September 11th. Mm. Do you remember what New York was like when you arrived? Oh, absolutely. Anybody that worked there will never, ever forget it. It slaps you in the face in ways that TV just simply cannot convey. The sights, the sounds, the smells of dust and smoke and plastic burning, the smell of death. Anybody that's been around that knows what it smells like. I mean, just on so many levels, your senses are assaulted by the sheer magnitude of it. Can you say a little bit more about what the working days were like? It seems like the scale of what needed to be done was so complete. It might have been difficult to try to stay organized or try to have any kind of a plan for how you're going to do the recovery and assistance work. What was that like for you? Yeah, so initially, you know, our team, we did 12-hour shifts. And as you recall in the beginning, it started as a uh, as a rescue, hopefully, to save any anybody that still may be trapped or alive in the debris. So initially, most people were on bucket brigades, and that means you know that you were literally climbing the hill and helping to remove debris. And the, the, the siren would sound, and everybody would go as silent as possible because someone thought they heard something, maybe a banging or a call for help. And everyone would listen intensely and, and you know, the, all the times that that happened when I was there, unfortunately, nothing was heard. And then, you know, the horn would sound again and you'd go back at the moving the debris and trying to find people. And after a, a number of days of this, it pivoted more from rescue to recovery. And in addition to the recovery part, there was also a, a search for evidence. So, we worked with the FBI evidence recovery team to help try to look for anything that may be helpful in terms of evidentiary or investigatory purposes as it related to the crash. How is that different than other, other crime scenes that you've worked on? Again, the scale, just so massive. I remember different moments of it very distinctly, obviously, the, the heat and the smell and the sounds on that scale will never be matched in my lifetime. And, you know, your, your boots were literally melting on some of the rubble pile because of the heat and fire down within. And I remember specifically a time when I was with an FBI agent and we went into a building that was actually closed because they were afraid it too may collapse. But 
based on the trajectory of the plane, some thought that maybe evidence or even, you know, hope on hope, part of the black box may have been in the building as the debris carried through. So we went into that building, even though we weren't supposed to, to see if we could find any evidence of the plane in that building that was struck by part of this tragedy. And I remember we rounded this corner and looked out and the building was just sheared off like it had been cut open. And it went from, you know, being in a building that was completely dark. Obviously, remember, there's no power running water, completely dark. So you'd have to work your way up through the stairs with a flashlight. And you rounded this corner. All of a sudden, there was a lot of light because the building had been sliced wide open as part of the Trade Center took part of it off. And it just dropped down like at the point we were. We were about 40 floors up right to the rubble pile. And as I looked to my left, I saw a cubicle and on that desk, there was a purse. And those kinds of things are what just sear in your mind, those small little details, because everyone knows what a purse is to a woman. You know, she carries everything of value to her and that for her daily life and her driver's license or pictures of her family, her makeup or whatever she needs on a daily basis. And, you know, women just don't leave their purse. And so you try not to let thoughts flood in your mind because you're focused on doing your job. But I couldn't help but wonder, wonder where that woman was. I wonder if she made it out. I wonder if she got caught when that building sheared off, if she was six feet past that cubicle, the building's gone. And, you know, was she over talking to a coworker when it fell? And, you know, all of those kinds of thoughts just you can't avoid, unfortunately, because you're human, obviously. Yeah. But those, those are the ones that just, you know, come flooding into you when you look around at the situation, pieces of lunch left on a desk or whatever the case may be. And it, it almost was frozen in time. And you wonder what happened to everybody that was at that area. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Oakland County Sheriff Michael Bouchard. He and a group of volunteers drove to New York City on the evening of 9-11 to help assist in rescue and recovery efforts. Some of the people who went to work in New York didn't really speak fully in public about what they experienced there, that they felt it would just, it would be too much for family or friends to handle. Right. I wonder what your experience was with that. Yeah, I mean, some things you don't get into detail about because you don't want to burden other people. And some people aren't used to dealing with such huge sadness or death, you know, and, and especially right after it happened, people were so raw. They don't certainly want to hear it. The survivors or the family members that lost loved ones, you know, so I also went to Katrina and, you know, we literally would pass bodies that were bloating and in the street and, you know, people don't understand that and they can't wrap their head around, you know, a mass casualty scene like either of those situations. I know that for people who are in your line of work, there really isn't a lot of question of would you go? Because when you're called, you, you need to go. But right. were you glad that you went? Yes, I think most of the people that went, A, they volunteered for it. I put out a call for volunteers. I didn't want to order people to go. And we had way more people volunteer than we could bring. And I think the reason is because men and women, whether it's in police or fire or the military, they sign up because they want to make a difference. They want to help in those worst moments. They want to be 
someone that can make a difference. And so everybody in our profession wanted to go, wanted to be there. And I think that's part of kind of the ethos of public safety and end of the military. You know, we know that you're going to a dangerous spot, whether it's this situation or an active shooter, but everybody rushes to get there because that's what they want to do. And for us, you know, I think most of America wanted to do something. They wanted to help. And we almost viewed it as a blessing that we were in a profession that allowed us to actually go in person and help. Were there ways that what you saw in New York or just the entirety of the experience changed your sense of safety or your sense of security? Oh, absolutely. It, it changed, you know, everything. I think for anybody that was touched by it, first, first thing it changed was it was a, for anyone that was there or saw this or felt this, it was life-changing in that you never take a day for granted, that in a blink, things can change and don't leave things unsaid. Don't you know? miss an opportunity to tell someone you love them. Just don't presume. And the other thing that it changes is that as it relates to the question on security, how can we do things different and better? We have to be much more engaged and involved, not just in the military side of protecting America, but on public safety and on the police side. You know, when I became a police officer, there was no such thing as a Homeland Security Department. And, you know, I'm on the Joint Terrorism Task Force as a member, and I was a syndicate leader for an international counterterrorist group. So I'm very involved in counterterrorism worldwide. And whoever envisioned that for law enforcement, certainly when I started, no one. Yeah. During that time, there was a lot of fear in the community toward people of color, specifically toward anyone who looked Middle Eastern or Muslim. I wanted to ask you about this because I know your family is Syrian-Lebanese. Yeah. In those first few weeks after 9-11, were you concerned about what Muslim folks or folks who looked Middle Eastern or Mediterranean or even just someone who looked non-white, what they might be up against? Sure. I mean, anytime you have a high profile crime or something like this, even worse, you'll have certain people that suddenly, you know, ascribe that to the whole population or the whole, whatever the case may be. So, you know, what I tried to make sure was that our message was to the communities that we will protect you from any backlash simply because of the fact you may be an Arab American. And that you can't be lumped into the category of being a terrorist any more than, you know, any person can be lumped into any category with somebody that does something horrific. I have one more question that perhaps is not a fair question for somebody who's tasked with, you know, seeking out threats and, you know, having the kind of situational awareness that most of us don't, so that our communities can be safe. Right. But some people look at the experience of September 11th, and that kind of heightened suspicion and heightened awareness that you're talking about, and they feel like what America has now that it didn't have before is a sense of threat everywhere, that maybe is not in line with what most of us actually experience in the course of a lifetime. 
anyone who's lived through 9-11 has realized that things can happen that aren't part of an average lifetime, that that's the point. Right. But do you think that America is is really safer and really better off trying to keep ahead of those threats and those possibilities? Yeah, it's a, a very valid question. And my answer to this is America and Americans should not be afraid. They shouldn't be paranoid. They shouldn't be anxious about living life. They should be situationally aware, to use your word and what we use all the time. They should notice things and be tuned into their surroundings. Again, not afraid, but just heads up and much more observant and aware. And then if they see something that's concerning, they, they share it. Doesn't mean you don't live your life. And statistically, the chances of you being involved in a situation where a terrorist attacks or an active shooter, statistically are very, very low and unlikely. Having said that, it doesn't minimize the emotional toll on the families that experience it or those that see it from afar and it begins to inhibit their life because they're afraid of it. So that's why there's a balance of noticing, being aware, checking your surroundings with everyday life. So like, for example, if you go to a movie theater, when you go to a theater, I always tell people, notice where you're sitting, notice where the exits are other than the one you came in. Not just because maybe an active shooter or a terrorist comes into that movie theater and we've seen those happen, but what if there's a fire? What if there's a tornado? How do you get out when the lights go out? Where do you go? What do you crawl to? And those are just thoughts. And you quickly do your homework. You glance around. You figure it out. And then you file it away and enjoy your movie and enjoy the day. The same way you do on an airplane when they give you the speech and say, you know, it's unlikely we'll have a water episode and, you know, your flotation device is here. Notice where your exits are. The closest one may be behind you. And they go through that. Most people tune that out. That's just reminding people to be aware if there's an emergency, what to do. Don't freak out about it. Just be aware. I mean, probably everyone listening, if they drive a car, certainly they buy car insurance. If they have an apartment or home, they probably shop and make a determination of fire insurance or homeowners or renters insurance, they don't anticipate that everything they own will be burned up, but they make that study. They determine what they need. They purchase that insurance and then they put it in a file cabinet and they quit worrying about it. That's the way we need, I think, to approach a dangerous world. Be a little more aware, a little more connected, a little more involved and have that situational awareness but don't make it change your life. So I think that's the balance in a today's world, in a dangerous world. Michael Bouchard is the sheriff of Oakland County. Sheriff Bouchard, thank you so much for talking with us today. My pleasure. You have a great day. Coming up, somebody else who was investigating threats to security in the post-9-11 years, but who has a different take on the period and on the methods that law enforcement used. We were trained by people who had done organized crime prosecutions in the past. So we adopted many of the strategies that were used in organized crime. We'll speak with former U.S. Attorney Barb McQuaid after the break. Stay with us. You're with Stateside. I'm April Baer. There aren't many periods of American history quite like the post-9-11 era. People who hadn't thought much about domestic security were suddenly painfully aware of what could happen. People whose business was public safety suddenly had a new set of concerns on their hands. 
In fall of 2001, Barbara McQuaid was a mid-career lawyer for the federal government. She subsequently worked on counterterrorism investigations, pursued funders of terrorism, and more. President Obama ultimately appointed her to be the U.S. attorney for the Eastern Michigan District in 2010. During her tenure, she also co-chaired the Department of Justice's Domestic Terrorism Executive Committee. She joins us now. Barb McQuaid, welcome back to Stateside. Thanks, April. Great to be with you. Can you tell us a little bit about how you observed the Department of Justice adapting itself in, in the years after to pursuing this kind of terrorist threat? Well, almost immediately after 9-11, counterterrorism became the top priority of the Department of Justice. And one of the things that helped to facilitate that transformation was the passage of the USA Patriot Act. You may recall in October of 2001, very quickly. And many of the authorities there were things that the Department of Justice had been agitating for for a long time that they just couldn't get the attention of Congress on. You know, like the ability to use wiretap technology on cell phones and the ability to obtain email messages, those kinds of things. The, the law had not kept up with the digital age. Uh, but of course, there were some other things that have since been scaled back or sh struck down um, as either bad ideas or bad policy or unconstitutional. Um, but the mission of the department did change very much. Now, it wasn't that we stopped doing those other things. We, we had this counterterrorism mission added to our plate, but no doubt some of the resources that were previously working on other kinds of crimes were now focused on counterterrorism. What was it like to go through that kind of a, that kind of a change? I mean, were, were investigative techniques going through a metamorphosis? Or was it just a question of, as you say, uh, you know, adapting some tools to a use that everyone agreed was needed? Um, much of it was an adaptation, but we did have to learn how to use new tools. So, for example, with the USA Patriot Act, we got some new authorities. Uh, one of the big changes was there had previously been um, what was referred to as the wall between criminal investigators at the FBI and counterintelligence investigators. And it was created for a good purpose. It came in response to abuses by the FBI in the 60s and 70s when they were under the guise of national security, wiretapping people perceived to be political enemies or just politically dangerous, you know, like Vietnam War protesters and Black Panthers and groups like that. One of the things the Patriot Act did was to take down that wall and say, um, you know, those were the best of intentions, but you've had uh, disastrous results. And in fact, it was the wall that prevented the FBI in Minnesota from sharing with others that Zacharias Massawi had been taking flight lessons, but wasn't interested in taking off and landing, only doing the in-between flying parts. And so because of that wall, it had prevented the ability for the right hand to know what the left hand was doing. So uh, so part of the, the work was learning how to use these new authorities and what the limitations on them were. But another part of it was a lot of training for prosecutors. And we were trained by people who had done organized crime uh, prosecutions in the past. So we adopted many of the strategies that were used in organized crime. Some of them are, you may um, have information that no one will testify to that this person's a killer, but they've also violated income tax laws. Okay, we'll charge them with income tax laws. Uh, or, you know, in the case of 
counterterrorism, it may be that the person has, on the intelligence side, has been trained as a fighter for a foreign terrorist organization, uh, and they're in this country um, on a visa fraud or immigration fraud or have engaged in some kind of financial fraud. And so that would be the charge. That was a technique that was adopted from organized crime. And the other technique adopted from organized crime and other kinds of predecessor crimes was the sting operation, uh, using undercovers, using informants um, for people who had demonstrated an intent to commit a crime to try to stop them before they could go through with it. So the way this would play out was, and, and people may have read or heard about some of these cases, federal law enforcement would try to identify people who uh, might hold, uh, by U.S. standards, you know, extreme, extreme views of, of Islam or of, or of just of the U.S. And its, and its power within the world, within chat rooms and other online forums, forums that were dedicated to radical Islamist ideals. And then agents and informants, if they thought it appropriate, would interact with these people online, get to know them, reach out to them under false pretenses of being sympathetic. And then sometimes, uh, if again, if, if deemed important, they would meet with them in person in the interests of getting to people before they got fully radicalized. Can you sort of lay out what role that played in the bigger strategy and just how, you know, if, if, it, was, if it was critical to the work that was being done at the time? Yes. So in the same way that th those kinds of techniques were used for internet child predators, for example, uh, they were used for people who might be engaged in terrorism. And I should point out that before uh, the FBI can engage with them, they have to have what is known as predication. And that is not just an extremist view of Islam, but uh, an expression of a desire to commit a crime. So people can have whatever views they want of Islam. They can even have whatever views they want of a terrorist organization. They can, you know, say, you know, praise to ISIS or whatever it is. But it is the, I, I am interested in killing people. I'm interested in blowing up a school. We had a case in Detroit where someone expressed a desire to shoot up a, a church in Detroit. Uh, and then as, as he talked further, it became clear it was a specific church, a very large church in the city of Detroit. And so the idea there is to engage with them. Um, and also a lawyer will be involved with the investigation and advising the agent or the undercover or the informant about um, what the rules of engagement can be. For example, um, we would always work very hard to steer clear of an entrapment defense not only because it's wrong to entrap someone, but if you entrap someone, you will fail in your case and you will fail to convict someone you believe is a dangerous person and they will be back out on the street to harm others. So instead, the ideas you know needed to come from the person. And so it was really just talking to them, saying, tell me more and, and things like that. And and then perhaps when the person said, you know, I want to I wanna shoot up a church or I want to blow up a building or whatever it was, uh, at some point, uh, people meet up with him and say, well, I could probably find a guy who, who can help. You, you know, you, what, what do you need? And, you know, again, the words need to come from that person. And they'll say things like, I need a bomb. I need a timing device. I need this. Like, All right. Well, maybe I can find a guy who can do that. What do you need? And so uh, they say, let's meet on X date and, you know, we'll give you the stuff. But the other crucial thing about entrapment is uh, the agents are always instructed to give the person kind of a last a last opportunity uh, to get out. Are you sure you want to do this? Do you understand what this means? Uh, do you realize that a lot of innocent people are going to die, including children? And uh, those are all important steps to uh, rebut 
an allegation of entrapment at trial. So the goal uh, in FBI parlance is to stop a perpetrator left of boom. Boom being the moment on a timeline when an attack occurs or violence occurs. And so left of boom is the goal whenever you're dealing with uh, any sort of a violent activity um, that you want to stop before it happens. Do you think that this strategy was was successful, that there is such a thing as a as a latent threat that can be met by drawing it out before it becomes an issue? I don't know, because you'll never know what you stopped by by preventing it. I mean, there were certainly some plots underway to attack America that were disrupted. There was one involving uh, bridges and tunnels in New York. Um the Abdul Muttalib underwear bomber who tried to blow up a plane over Detroit. There was the shoe bomber uh, and others, you know, they got disrupted because of intelligence collection, intelligence sharing, and the ability to uh, strike hard against people in this country with ties to terrorist organizations. And so uh, by disrupting that, I, I, I hope it was successful. I think in many ways it was successful. I think that there certainly, though, were examples of overreach. Uh, you know, there was a program that the New York uh, Police Department was engaged in where they were just surveilling Muslims, which is, you know, not only unconstitutional, a violation of equal protection to go after one group uh, and different from another. It's also a very inefficient method of law enforcement. Um, you know, working with real information about conduct is what matters most in cases not about you know profiling based on race or ethnicity or religion and so i think there were some examples of of overreach like that we had a case in detroit where there was some overreach where um four men were charged with uh conspiracy to engage in a terrorist plot they had videos of disney world and other kinds of things uh, but that case unraveled because the prosecutor in that case um, not only failed to comply with his ethical requirements, he was ultimately charged with a crime. He was acquitted at trial. But, um, you know, certainly I think it would be fair to say engaged in some overreach. Um, but I think that uh, in those days after 9-11, there was a desire to use every possible legal tool to identify terrorists. You know, I think at that time, too, there was a real fear that there were more sleeper cells like the ones who did the 9-11 hijacking attack. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking today with Barb McQuaid. She's a professor of law at the University of Michigan Law School and a former U.S. attorney for Michigan Eastern District. In recent years, the most pressing domestic threats have shifted. The FBI and the Department of Justice are spending a lot more of their attention lately on white supremacist and anti-government groups. Are there ways in which you think the changes that took place after 9-11 and the experiences that the FBI and federal attorneys have, ways that that's informed the way that domestic threats are investigated now? So I think so. I, you know, I, I haven't been at the Justice Department now for about four years, but just watching what they're doing and say the investigation involving the uh, alleged kidnapping plot against Governor Whitmer. Uh, it does seem like those same techniques are being used. Even when I was there, we had a case against a militia group in 2010 where we used those same techniques using uh, an undercover FBI agent to infiltrate the group. Um, you know, it is probably the best way to be able to listen to what they're saying is to have either people or listening devices in when groups are meeting to find out what they're up to. But, you know, again, all of these things come with safeguards. Uh, they come with protections of a judicial oversight to get a wiretap, you have to have 
probable cause that you're going to find evidence of a crime. It's not a perfect fit because the laws do not map perfectly onto each other. When there's an international actor, we have a lot of additional tools that are not available for domestic cases. And that's because of the extreme uh, care that we have to protect people's First Amendment rights to free speech and free assembly. When people are gathering in our militia groups and are shooting guns, you know, all of those things are protected by the First Amendment. If you have a foreign actor, you have the ability to use FISA, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, as long as you have probable cause that the person is acting as an agent of a foreign government or a foreign terrorist organization. So if a person has expressed any allegiance to ISIS or Al-Qaeda or something like that, you can use this FISA wiretap on them. Um, you don't have that tool at all for domestic actors. It cannot be used uh, if a person doesn't have any sort of tie to a foreign government or a foreign terrorist organization. Similarly, in the uh, foreign terrorist realm, there is a crime um, of terrorism transcending in national boundaries. And so if you have somebody acting here, but they're doing so uh, on behalf of ISIS or Al-Qaeda, that transcends national boundaries, and you can uh, very broadly look into things like even like say they're planning a mass shooting, they're going to shoot up a church. You could look at that um, and investigate that. For domestic terrorism, there is not a counterpart to that statute. There are many others. And most of the time you can find something. If people are planning to use a bomb, for example, that works. If you're planning a kidnapping, that works. So you have a few tools fewer in the domestic arena, but I still think many of those same techniques uh, are used, which is you know, assessing threats in chat rooms, if you find predication, opening an investigation, and then engaging with people who have demonstrated an intent to commit acts of violence. On September 10th, 2001, I, I venture to say you already had a pretty realistic view of things that can happen in the world. But were there ways in which September 11th changed your ideas about safety and security in this country? Certainly. Um, I had thought of terrorism as kind of a distant problem that occurred in other places. Uh, you know, there had been the, the USS Cole bombing, which was an Al-Qaeda attack on a U.S. ship, but it had happened overseas. You heard about this happening in London and England, but it was mostly a distant threat. I guess we'd had Oklahoma City, which uh, probably should have been eye-opening, but that also seemed like, you know, kind of a one-off extremist uh, but I think 9-11 really hit a lot of us home at home. You know, we it, because I was home on maternity leave, I watched a lot of the coverage, probably too much, by uh, more than is healthy. But, you know, the stories of just good people going about their day, losing their lives uh, was so gut-wrenching. Um, and, you know, it wasn't just there. It was also the plane at the Pentagon uh, and the plane that went down in Shanksville. And, and of course, it was two planes at uh, the World Trade Center. Uh, it made us very nervous, not only about aviation security, but you may also recall that right after that came that anthrax scare, where people were getting mailed anthrax, and you know, the mails were getting shut down, and you kind of felt like the whole world was falling apart. And so I felt like, personally, I wanted to do something about it. I wanted to help. And so, you know, having an opportunity at the U.S. Attorney's Office to join a counterterrorism unit um, was meaningful to me. And I always saw my job as working very hard to not only protect the public, but to do so in a way that ensured that we were complying with constitutional rights. And I'm very proud of the work that we did then. 
And um, I think it's always a delicate balance because, uh, you know, you, I, I teach a course in national security and civil liberties. If you wanted to have a, a nation that was 100% safe, you could probably do that by having an authoritarian state where no one can ever, you know, go outside or engage in transactions or other things. But I don't think anybody wants that. We want a country where we're free because uh, that's what makes America what it is. You know, we, we have freedom to go about our business, to do what we want, to express ourselves, to express ideas. Um, or you could also have a society at the way opposite end where everybody gets to do whatever they want all the time and there are no laws um, and we just go about our business and we're totally free. And I don't think anybody would want that either. I think that would lead to anarchy. And so the proper place is to look for that balance. Where do we fall in the middle? And so there are certain things that are absolutes in this country. Constitutional rights, you can't violate someone's uh, rights against unreasonable searches and seizures. Uh, you can't violate someone's due process rights. You can't violate someone's equal protection rights. Um, but within that, I think law enforcement had a duty to use all the tools that it had to do what it could and to this day what it can to disrupt these threats, whether it's uh, coming from Al-Qaeda or it's coming from uh, a militia group in rural Michigan that wants to kidnap the governor. I think um, law enforcement has a duty to do what it can within those parameters to protect the public. Barb McQuaid is a professor of law at the University of Michigan Law School and a former U.S. attorney for Michigan Eastern District. Barb, thank you very much. Thank you, April. Tomorrow's edition of Stateside will be devoted to Michiganders whose years after 9-11 were spent under the eye of a newly terrified America. It's just ridiculous. You know, some of the stories and things that still happen to a lot of my friends who either look very Arab or have a very Arabic name or wear a hijab. Please join us for that on the Friday edition of Stateside. You'll also be able to stream the program online at michiganradio.org. And that's Stateside for today. Our show is produced by Aaron Allen, Mike Blank, April Van Buren, and by our director, Mercedes Mejia, with additional help from Elizabeth Harlow and Lucas Pollock. Our executive producer is Laura Weber-Davis. Stateside's a production of Michigan Radio, a broadcast service of the University of Michigan. I'm April Baer. Thank you very much for being with us today. We'll see you next time. <laughs>